Escape velocity. And welcome to episode 8 of Escape Velocity Radio for March 2013. I am your host, Derek Hogue. And I'm just some fucking transient named Chris who shows up every fucking month, apparently. <laughs> so uh, what's, how's your month been? How's it been going on? Talk to, talk to me. You making big plans? No. Doing lots of exciting projects? Little, not, not really. Little new avenues into uh, no. the public mind? No, how about yourself? I've been sitting around. Oh. Doing some skiing. I like hockey. I play hockey. I like that's You make, have been playing hockey. It makes me happy. You guys make the you guys didn't playoffs or anything like that? Playoffs in five games. Playoffs are coming in five games. Yeah. You gonna or, make them? You gonna make them? Oh fuck yeah. Excellent. We're fucking second in the division. That's exciting. We may actually fucking win. We're you're, gonna fucking win this year. You're looking to take the cup. Yeah, there's no cup. Oh. Well, didn't you get it last year? No, that was in a tournament. Ah, right. I did win that cup and raise it above my head like a glorious warrior. <laughs> so, Chris, the Liberator Kickstarter project, which we discussed in previous episode. We did. It has been successfully backed. Did you hear that? I did hear about that. They were looking for $18,000. That was their goal. They received $20,489 in the end. That's and pretty wicked. It is. And and so just, just to remind people who might have forgotten, it's a it's a comic book series, right? Yes. It is an animal liberation themed comic book series. It follows animal liberation, direct action animal liberation activists and uh and their travails, I assume. I don't know. I haven't read the script. Yeah. So so it worked. They got they got eighteen grand to make four issues. Yeah. Of the it seem, doesn't well, seem they like, got twenty grand. Doesn't seem like a lot of money to me. No, because the amount of work to go into a comic book must be huge. Yeah. I, I can't even... Like, you have to have a crew of people. It's, it's, it seemed like they had a crew of, like, uh, illustrators, editors, color artists. Yeah. 18 grand? And then they got to print these things, too. That's the thing. I don't even get out of bed for less than 18 grand. <laughs> I had to give you eighteen five to get you out of bed to do this today. So, you and I, we're both backers. Yep. Uh, of this Kickstarter project for Liberator. So there was one update that came through where uh, Matt Miner, the, the, the writer of the comic, uh, and he was the, the founder of the project, he sent out an update with a, with a video uh, describing some of the rescue work uh, that he does in Rockaway Beach, New York. You know, it was a, it was a nice video, discussed the, the animals they've saved, their own personal rescues, the work they do for to rescue animals uh, in that area. And then he had an update the next day following this mm-hmm. um, saying that he'd received a bunch of criticism from backers and, and others that he was somehow using his animal rescue work mm-hmm. uh, for personal gain by by using it as like leverage to get people to back the project, which he came out and said very emphatically that this was a non-profit project and that any profits made from the Kickstarter right. would just go back into their animal rescue work, which actually really pissed me off because 
here's a guy who does a bunch of work on his own free time right. and on his own dime helping animals. And then he puts together a crew of people who are talented to make a creative endeavor. Right. And yet somehow the implication is that he should not be allowed to benefit from that personally in any way. He shouldn't be paid fairly for his work and the other people involved. It's crazy to me. Right. Was there a point that he was he was exploiting the the misery of rescued dogs? I I don't know. Maybe it it it's nonsensical. Mm. It's completely nonsensical. It's it's a bizarre inclination to pull someone who is already doing good in the world, more good than most people do ever yeah. in anything, and then find something to fucking try to bring them down about. It right. drives me crazy. Right. He's trying to make an animal liberation comic book. Fucking lay off. Anyway, that irritated me. can't wait to see people's reaction to that one. <laughs> can't believe I tweeted that. Uh, what are you getting at with this tweet here, Chris? Let's discuss this. What's what? There's, what tweet? Been, there's been a widespread uh, controversy yes. in Europe over uh, horse meat being found right. in what are purportedly beef products, right. uh, both in the UK and in Europe, stemming from a few different uh, slaughterhouses, apparently. And there is uproar. Yeah. Uh, around this because they don't want to eat horses. Right. I, I thought I was eating a cow. I'm eating a horse? This is an outrage. Yeah. But what are your thoughts on that? What prompted? Well, I think, I, I, I mean, all I have to say is anyone outraged by the horse meat scandal who isn't a horse, please shut up. <laughs> I, it's ridiculous. It's re- I, I, guess, I guess if we try to pull back from the situation and imagine there, we have no ethical dilemma with the industrialized killing of animals murder and we just and we the murder of animals then perhaps we could see that if you're not getting what you pay for you're pissed off mm-hmm. like what i paid for something you gave me something else i didn't know it i would never know it yeah. but but i'm pissed off that i found out well that so, it's funny cuz that happened to me the other day cuz i thought that i was buying strawberry flavored lube and then i brought it home and then ruth was like oh god this is chocolate and you turned around and said, that's not chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's hard to want to defend those consumers for that reason. Because there is a, a huge ethical dimension to the whole thing that absolutely makes it impossible for uh, people who are opposed to the industrial slaughter of animals to have that discussion over that issue. Well, and I would, I would assume that a lot of the outrage is from consumers who actually have, they feel an ethical objection to the 
the slaughtering of horses right. for meat it's in the pr- same way that they would never slaughter their cat or their dog. Right. So it's not so much about, I thought I was getting one thing and I got another. It's like, it's the other that they got. Mm-hmm. It's the a horse, like a black stallion that yeah. was running across a beach. And yeah. I, now I, I don't want to eat that beautiful creature. Horses are for riding, not for eating. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh. The the double standard, but yes, there is a there is a high degree of absurdity in the controversy. But it's also not surprising because worldwide, the regulation and inspection of slaughter facilities, uh, this is a chronically underfunded. Who gives a shit? Who gives a shit if it's fucking monitored or not? It's true. It just needs to be abolished. Abolished. Yes. Put people in there. To say, hey, they're doing a good job in there. <laughs> No what? cows are getting hurt. <laughs> well, you said you were going to slit the pig's throat. And you did. <laughs> Might as well go for a soda. Nobody hurts and nobody cries. Might as well go for a soda. So, Chris, you watch a big game? What big game? Super Bowl. Super Bowl Sunday. Not really interested in football. Love the ads. You watch those ads? Go on, you, go on YouTube. Okay. There's a YouTube playlist. There were super, super Bowl ads. Advertising. It's great. Well, Chris, there was a big controversy. Oh. Are you familiar with this soda stream? Have you heard of this? Yes, we have one upstairs. Yeah, I've seen that, which makes you an asshole. I'll get into that later. <laughs> well, soda stream, this is a, this is a device which carbonates water for you right uh you can also put little flavor things in there make your own colas and and whatnot haven't done that anyway so they submitted an ad to the super bowl and it was rejected because it depicted drivers of the coke and pepsi trucks pulling a bunch of bottles of coke and pepsi up to a store right and then the bottles would explode when a well-dressed man in a suburban kitchen with a granite countertop every time he carbonated a bottle of soda stream, the bottles would explode on the Coke and Pepsi. And I suppose that Coke and Pepsi are large financial contributors to the infrastructure of the Super Bowl through sponsorships and advertising and whatnot. So for fear of offending the sponsors, this soda stream ad was pulled, it had to be replaced with a, a less fiery version. Okay. Which is absurd, of course, at its root, though it is expected under the corporate control of Everything. <laughs> Specifically, Major League Sports. Right. But you know what? That is not the real controversy here. Oh. To me, anyway. That is not the real scandal. The real scandal is that SodaStream mm-hmm. has its main factory on an illegal settlement in the West Bank. Ah. Did you know this? I Yes. Then why do you have one upstairs? <laughs> this is a fucking outrage. SodaStream is an Israeli company. And their main factory is in the industrial park of Malay Adamim. I probably just butchered that. Which also happens to be the largest Israeli settlement in the West Bank. There's an industrial park. And a settlement is, is 
a settlement, basically, uh, what the West Bank settlements are illegal settlements of homes. Basically, the Israeli government grants permission to build on Palestinian land. Build on Palestinian land. This is outside of the Green Line, which is the informal uh, border uh, created uh, in 1948 between the West Bank and Gaza and Israel. And uh, Israel basically tries to ignore this border. They, their ultimate goal is to expand and take as much territory as possible from the Palestinians. So they build these settlements to create facts on the ground, right. as they call them, so that as the political process progresses, if it progresses at all, it makes a Palestinian state less and less viable because there's all these Israeli settlements cutting it up. And then they built the separation wall, which encompasses these settlements and further encroaches onto Palestinian territory. What happens to the people that were living on those lands previous to the settlements? Uh, They are forced out. And a lot of it is farmland that Palestinian farmers used to work. And then all of a sudden there's a settlement. They can't work that land anymore. And guess what it's led to? Oh, high unemployment because there's no No jobs. So this particular settlement where this SodaStream plant is located is actually at the center of controversy over the Israeli government's E1 plan, which is a plan they've had on the table for about 14 years to expand these settlements just east of Jerusalem, which is what Israel wants to be. It's undivided capital. Right, right. Into about 12 square kilometers in this area. And uh, it's, you know, the, the EU has pretty much come out against this, uh, even the U.S., They've been applying pressure for Israel not to go forward with this E1 plan because it is such a slap in the face to any idea that there could possibly be a a settlement. Okay. According to The Guardian, this settlement area would largely complete a sort of crescent of Jewish settlements around the east of Jerusalem and would separate all the Palestinian towns and cities in the West Bank, pretty much cutting the West Bank in half. And uh, it would pretty much make a contiguous Palestinian state impossible, to which Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, has dismissed saying, we will carry on building in Jerusalem and in all the places that are on the map of Israel's strategic interests. Yikes. Sounds like the US. So why would SodaStream build its factory there? They receive financial incentives from the Israeli government to do so, because all businesses in these settlement industrial parks qualify for ongoing tax deductions. So, Chris, those who defend SodaStream and other businesses that mm-hmm. exist in these West Bank uh, industrial parks, settlement industrial parks, they claim that they're actually helping because they give jobs to Palestinians. Well, that sounds all right. Yeah, sounds pretty reasonable. Daniel Birnbaum, this is the company's CEO, SodaStream CEO, is quoted as saying, we don't strengthen or support the occupation. Interesting. What we're doing is taking a facility in the occupied territory and giving Palestinians a career and economic benefits. I've got to laugh when they think we're on the wrong side of this. We're part of the solution. We build bridges, not walls. I have to say I'm actually surprised by his language in there. Well, he's very good at uh, PR. But I mean, to say he doesn't support the occupation, despite, I mean, it's, it's interesting language. Instead of well, I think, instead of just being a belligerent, blindly patriotic Israeli business. Yeah, though I think when he says we don't strengthen or support the occupation, he's saying our existence here doesn't strengthen or support the occupation. Right, but he's, not but necessarily he's, he's saying it's personally. an occupation. He's saying it's an occupation. Yes, it is interesting language for him to use mm-hmm. defending his business's presence. occupation presence. Yeah. in an occupied territory. Yeah, I understand that it's internally illogical. For him to say that, yep. but that he is saying it says something. It's true. 
It's true. But his statement, Chris, yes. stands in contrast to Peter Weisberg, the founder of SodaStream. Uh, he was very clear about his choice to build the settlement in this uh, occupied industrial park, saying that, quote, it was a good deal, not a political act. And he's referring here to the fact that uh, they got this site for free for the first six months after they uh, moved there. And they also received $100,000 in cash as a grant in order to renovate the facility. Uh, so this, I think, is more of a calculated financial decision. Right, but he's still, it's, it's still not really in contrast to what the other guy says. Like he's not, the contrast would be, we don't give a fuck. This is Israel's <laughs> land. We occupy it. Fuck the Palestinians. Can I quote you on that? But go on. Yes, I see. I, yeah, I, see, I do see what you're saying. In that it is, a, it is an unexpected statement. You would expect more of a uh, chauvinistic yes. response uh, from, from the CEO of, of a company with a factory there. But continue with the quote. I see some interesting stuff coming up here. So the reality for Palestinian workers, Chris, is that in the settlements, they don't enjoy the full protection of regular Israeli labor law. Okay. Uh, they have to get special permits and go through security clearances just to be able to enter these factories because they're on what Israel considers its land. Even though it's not their land. Even though it's not their land. And so to be involved in a labor dispute uh, constitutes a security risk. And many Palestinians fear losing their jobs and losing this security clearance, which must be granted by the company that they are working for. Hmm. So as such, many Palestinian workers don't demand any of their legal employment rights due to fear of losing uh, this work permit. Right. So it's essentially like having a sweatshop. Yeah, I think parallels have been made to the maquiladoras in Mexico, right. you know, where basically labor laws are ignored. And I'm not entirely sure what the situation is now, but uh, in this report, there's a wide-ranging report I would recommend our listeners read uh, called SodaStream, A Case Study for Corporate Activity in Illegal Israeli Settlements. This is by an organization called Who Profits, mm -hmm. and it is a pretty in-depth uh, report where a lot of this research came from. In that report, they talk about how in 2008, when they were doing some of this research, workers were making about half of the minimum wage. The Palestinian workers were making about half of the Israeli minimum wage working at this factory. And many labor disputes uh, ended in all of the workers who were involved in these disputes at the factory being fired and then having new mm. workers hired. So there's some you know, shady practices going on, uh, which I think there's more leeway for them to get away with this because they're on an illegal of settlement. Course. Yeah. And the other point about, you know, any sort of benefit coming to the Palestinians while they're working at in these illegal settlements is that uh, as with all the businesses in these uh, settlement parks, all the taxes are paid to Israel, not to the Palestinian Authority, even though they're on the Palestinian Authority's land. The, those taxes are used exclusively to support just the settlement through things like roads, education, sewage treatment, uh, and that sort of thing. And there's also a tragic irony here, Chris, in manufacturing a water carbonator in the West Bank, because in the West Bank, Israel controls between 80 and 85% of the water, freshwater resources in an area that they are not even legally allowed to be in. Right. So it's kind of sad that <laughs> this is actually, they're making a water carbonator that they sell as a green, environmentally friendly product to those in the West and, and the rest of the world to carbonate their water while 
they're part of an occupation which is depriving the indigenous inhabitants of their own fresh water supply. Right. So is it just SodaStream? Like, what? Why? Why SodaStream as opposed to other businesses in in the in these industrial parks? SodaStream has been chosen as a boycott target by a few different organizations. This is both, you know, anti-occupation Israeli organizations and the broader boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement and other organizations around the world. Because this is a company that is like on fire. This product is right. having a huge growth spurt. You're able to buy these at all sorts of stores now. Like here, just in Winnipeg, uh, over the past couple of years, the popularity of this product has totally exploded. I would love to have one of these things. I drink a lot of carbonated water, but I refuse to support this criminal activity <laughs> by an occupying government unlike you. Well, we got this one before we knew about any of this. We had no idea it was made in fucking... I thought it was, I thought it was made in St. Boniface. You know what? Let's... Let's, right now on the show, I think we should burn it. I'm fine with that. Helena will kill me. <laughs> I've, never u- I've never used the thing. I never <laughs> use the fucking thing. I think it's an ugly thing that takes up space on our counter <laughs> where I'd like to put the bread. <laughs> anyway, so that is why uh, it has been chosen as a target because it's, I think, especially among people who might, you know, consider themselves more liberal-minded, you know, they want to choose this product, which would mean using less resources, right. um, carbonate your own water. Maybe they'll have more sympathy to the idea that, you know, we should be supporting the indigenous people in a different part of the world in the same way that we try to ins- support the indigenous people in this part of the world. By drinking their water. By drinking. Carbonating their water. Carbonating the water taken from our indigenous people. We can do it, but don't you dare. Anyway, so I would encourage that our listeners uh, check out this report. Um, it's a pretty interesting case study. It's it's very well researched. It's pretty in depth, and it's it's fairly damning. And uh, what are you what are you still doing listening? Go and read it. Go read it right now. I have your attention for a second, Chris. Yes. I would like to take a moment, if I may. You may. To commemorate the 10th anniversary of an important and instructive moment in contemporary U.S. history here. In fact, it's an important and instructive moment in contemporary world history, I would argue. On February 5th, 2003, then U.S. Secretary of State, General Colin Powell, made a presentation to the United Nations Security Council, which made the case that Iraq had, quote unquote, Weapons of mass destruction. Right. I remember that. This presentation is widely credited as selling the invasion of Iraq to the American people, the media, and the U.S. Congress. Right. Despite the fact that a plethora of intelligence experts and policy analysts were highly skeptical of the claims made in this presentation. I know I was. I kept telling everybody, listen to me. No, listen, please. Well, Lawrence Wilkerson, he served as chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell. 
yeah. from 2002 to 2005. And in fact, this guy prepared the whole presentation. Okay. So he was the, the liar, liar, pants on fire. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Exactly. Now, Wilkerson has publicly denounced the presentation subsequently what? Uh, that he created for Powell, calling it the biggest mistake of his life. Oh. But he maintains that it was simply a case of bad intelligence. Oops. Uh, and that, quote, everyone was wrong about the existence of WMDs in Iraq. Oh, Democracy Now! You're familiar with the show? Democracy Now! Yeah. Democracy Now! They held a debate on the anniversary of this speech, 10th anniversary, okay. between Norman Solomon. You know this guy? I don't know him personally, but I am friends with his brother. He's a longtime activist, author, and he's the founding director of the Institute for Public Accuracy. It's very important for the public to be accurate. And during this debate, Wilkerson actually mounts the defense that Norman Solomon never called him to tell him that the case for war was fraudulent. Never, like, phoned him? Yes. Let's listen to a clip. Now, these are real intelligent people running the State Department and the White House, and uh, they are very savvy. And uh, if we uh, at the Institute for Public Accuracy and many other independent researchers could point out in real time that these WMD claims from the U.S. government were full of holes and had no credibility, why couldn't these agencies with multi-billion dollar budgets and a lot of brain trust come clean and the fact is they didn't want to come clean they were part of the war propaganda apparatus i don't disagree with what you just just said i I don't disagree that uh, there should have been a hell of a lot better job done by what is now a 65 plus billion dollar intelligence community and incidentally i don't think it's doing a much better job today than it did then Um, dollars do not buy you intelligence Uh, but at the same time uh, uh, let me just say i didn't see a single one of your reports so nobody called me from your group. Well, you didn't bother. Nobody you know, tried to I get, was in, on nobody tried to get into my office and talk to me from your group. You knew about Hans did, von Spanik. You knew never about got Scott Ritter. Office, and never yet called you didn't me on the phone. It. Never <clears> talked <throat> to me. Other groups did. Why didn't you? Hey, we were putting out news releases every day. If you would have taken my call, it would have knocked me over with a feather. Of course, you were in the upper strata. You didn't call. On your, your war preparation. You that didn't was the call. reality. You you, are you saying call. Colin Powell would have met with us to talk about this information? It wasn't secret we at all as well. You know, you we met knew with inspectors from the you previous ESCOM inspection team you knew, that, knew that had been in Iraq for a So this guy is saying that somebody didn't phone him. Yes, he's actually... If, if somebody, had, if somebody if, me, you, Norman Solomon, Jord, my three-year-old son, had phoned and said... Uh, there, there's no WMDs there. It's bad intelligence. He, he would, oh, I am sorry. I am sorry. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop the tanks. Stop the invasion. That's I, fucking insanity. I think the interesting thing with this is that this is like a government guy. He's so, he's just entrenched in his mindset is just entrenched. He literally, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. It's like when inside the cocoon yes. of in the intelligence agencies and the government apparatus and everyone around you, the, the whole policy thrust is towards a specific goal. There's, he thinks that he's actually making decisions based on sound, reasonable data. He actually thinks that if only someone had a told them, and, and he's blind to the fact that the entire system is, is the inertia of the policy is, it doesn't allow, it doesn't allow well, for dissent. He's telling himself that. He's yes. telling himself that, but these people, once they're, they, they have this high-profile gig in the highest 
order of government on the planet. Yeah. People are going to go with the flow. People do it in fucking the lowest rungs on the food chain. People get caught up in just having this gig and doing what you got to do to maintain it. Yeah. And don't rock the boat. Yeah. You rock the boat. You're out. Yeah. You're out. They, they, they had an agenda. They wanted to fucking invade Iraq. This was the pretext. He was all excited that he was going to be the guy to create that pretext for the public and sell it to the public because that's what, that's what you do. It's part, it's part of the game of life. Yeah. Like if you can do what you do well, you're stoked. And uh, to say that nobody phoned him to correct the intelligence, it's crazy, man. And I think the instructive thing about this too, I think the reason I wanted to bring this up and I think it's important to... Because it happens over and over. It happens over and over. And the buildup for war with Iran, for example, this has been slowly building for a long time. Many people in the public policy sphere fear that this is still a very real possibility that could be coming down the pipe. And, you know, we're just going to see the same thing over and over again. It just If you don't know, if you don't deconstruct what has happened in the past, especially with something where virtually all mainstream media were convinced, people thought this was like the slam dunk for presentation. The headlines the next day were ridiculous in their adulation of Colin Powell. And if that can be wrong, people just have to remember. Like The next time that you're told by the powers that be that there is incontrovertible proof that we have to go bomb and kill people, just fucking think twice. Yeah, they're lying. William Bloom, our guest on the last episode, often says the primary directive of governments is to lie to the people mm-hmm. to get their objectives completed. Yeah. So every time anybody in the government says something, you have to assume it's a lie. And, yeah. then, and then go from there. We shouldn't be surprised that they lie. We should be surprised that they tell the fucking truth. If you want to find out more, I think there's a really uh, good documentary from 2007 called War Made Easy, which is kind of based on Norman Solomon's book, also by the same name, War Made Easy. Um, but you should check out this documentary. It goes into detail uh, all the different levels of policy analysts and even people within the government who were really fighting the Bush administration on these claims uh, of WMDs and how they were just routinely marginalized, fired, how people were demonized, called traitors in the media. It's uh, it's depressing, but I think important to remember. So uh, you should check that out if you're interested. I'm not. So, Chris, did you hear about this NRA Gun Appreciation Day? I've never heard of the NRA. In January? Of course I did. Why do you have to have a Gun Appreciation Day? Come on now. Come on. It's like having a Hockey Puck Appreciation Day. (laughs) Everyone's got one. You don't need to have a day. That's so silly. It's very weird. It's very weird. Well, the other weird thing about this Gun Appreciation Day was that they decided that it was going to be on Martin Luther King Day. Yeah, I mean, just just by coincidence. Just right? by coincidence, the man shot. Yeah, the by white <laughs> racists. It's fucking crazy. How stupid can they possibly get? That well, is very stupid. They can get pretty st- stupid. Maybe actually. that's their point. If we don't have guns. We can't kill people who rise up against white supremacy. Chris, the writer Matt Tybee. Have you ever read this guy? He's pretty good. No, he writes a lot in. Uh, I don't Rolling read Stone. fucking Rolling Stone and fucking goofy goof mags. I don't read that shit. Who gives a fuck? You would be surprised. I'd be surprised. I don't care. I don't care if I'd be surprised. Fucking, I don't want to look at a 
picture of Red Hot Chili Peppers with their shirts off on the cover again. No, I have I have not read Rolling Stone, but I hear it's really good. <laughs> anyway, Chris, Matt Tybee had uh, an article encapsulating the ridiculousness okay. of this NRA Appreciation Day. He titled it, Conservatives Have Their Worst Week Ever. Oh my God. When was this? This was in January. Oh. <clears throat> we're a little late to the party here. We're, we were busy covering I Don't Know More last month. Right. We didn't have time to talk about this NRA US bullshit, but now we do. So let me quote from Matt Tybee in his Rolling Stone article. Oh, good. First, political media, a conservative action group, decided to try to make an appeal to win the hearts and minds of Americans everywhere by declaring January 19th, previously known as Martin Luther King Day to the rest of us, to be Gun Appreciation Day. So far, so good, right? Well, then they go and actually hold their Gun Appreciation Day rallies all over the country on Martin Luther King Day. And what happens? Five people get accidentally shot. You can't make this stuff up. In three separate incidents, one in North Carolina, one in Ohio, and one in Indiana, Gun-loving real Americans did their darndest to worsen the demographics in favor of the gun control lobby by blowing themselves away with accidental discharges. They failed, fortunately. All five victims in the three incidents survived. But you literally can't script a worse outcome for a political sideshow meant to highlight Americans' love of the wholesome, safe exercise of gun rights. He goes on to describe how Mm -hmm. people who were pulling guns out of display cases to look at them, accidentally discharged one, a 12 gauge shotgun went off spraying people with birdshot. Uh, Another where a gun dealer was checking out a semi-automatic gun and he accidentally pulled the trigger while they were still around in the chamber, shot himself in the foot. But what this made me think of Chris is what is the pathology going on here where there is, it is such an ingrained thing in American culture that guns are, such a a sacred right to be worshipped, actually worshipped, and that in the wake of a terrible tragedy where children are murdered in a school, all they can think to do is double down on their allegiance, their, their almost religious faith in an implement of death. It's bizarre. Derek, 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 What? Derek, 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 Derek. What is that noise? Derek, please. You are embarrassing yourself with hypocrisy right now. Why? Where were you on the night of September 12th, 2012 at 9.45 p.m.? Where were you? Um, That... I thought that was a private thing that we weren't going to tell anyone about. Well, I'm going to tell everybody. Were you not with somebody at a specific firing range outside oh. of the city oh. handling oh. Fi- firearms? Busted! Weren't you? It's true, Chris. I was. Why were you doing that if you're so opposed to guns? Uh, well, I did not say that I was so opposed to guns. Why? Are you dumb? Um, I don't know. I was... I was interested in using them. Why? I was. Uh, what gives you the right? Well, I am a free citizen of the world, and our constitution. Oh wait, we don't have a constitution. Um, 
our charter of wow is, isn't the charter of rights no it's not actually. what kind of firearms were you discharging at this firing range derek that well night? chris i shot a uh, 22 caliber rifle i shot a 22 caliber pistol i shot a 45 caliber pistol i shot uh an ar-15 an assault ar-15 rifle. assault rifle which was used in the said shootings of those young children yes so you felt like you had a right to use that weapon at this firing range, but you think everybody's stupid for wanting them otherwise. Anybody except you is a fucking idiot and uh, is a psychopath. Listen, listen, listen. It's true that everyone else is stupid. I will give you that. (laughs) That is a fact. But it is unrelated to the use of the AR-15 assault rifle. No, you know what, Chris? Were you trying to demystify the weapons? How, because you- I wanted to. I wanted to de- demystify the weapons. Yes, um, and I can see there being value in knowing, at least being moderately familiar with handling firearms. Why? I, because I won't rule out the possibility that at some point in my life, I or someone close to me may want or need. To use a firearm. I For would hope- what? What are you going to do? What are you going to fucking go up to some guy who's coding a new website and say, put down that computer? <laughs> no, Chris, I think I think it's common knowledge that we that short in our lifetimes, um, there's a very good possibility that we will face a uh, zombie apocalypse. That, right. I as, as presaged by popular television shows comic books novels and other meaningless pop culture i think it's safe to say that we can to some degree you as somebody who has gone to a firing range to demystify or to satisfy their own curiosity curiosity about about maybe the culture maybe the, the hardware itself and me as somebody who has done the same thing to the point of actually owning some, that both of us understand that some sense of that allure yes. of uh, of gun culture. The big difference is neither of us really embrace it. I mean, I don't want guns flooded through the streets. No. I don't even want guns in my house. I, I, I will admit I am, I am moderately titillated by the process, by shooting guns. It was fun. It was fun. It was interesting. It's a bizarre thing to hold such a odd implement of power and death in your hand. Well, then don't touch my... <laughs> Power and death. <laughs> oh, dear. <clears throat> I mean, it, it goes to show, no matter how much I raz Ted Nugent on Twitter right. for all the craziness he says, some of the things he says about when he's a little more cogent and being a little less obnoxious what he says about his views on gun ownership, they're not totally insane. He wants to protect his family. Uh, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You have to stop concentrating on the hardware and think about... He probably, the culture. The culture. He probably... Actually, he probably doesn't... He's too far gone to understand that if you flood a mentally ill culture with this hardware that facilitates mass slaughter, you got a problem. So, and he, he himself is a part of that he is emblematic in many ways of that sick culture he's not some upstanding gun citizen well, he's he's mowing down animals from helicopters with right. assault weapons right right but but i mean there are kernels of truth in some of the things that gun owner advocates 
are saying. It's not all bullshit. And for, for any listeners who may not have heard it on a previous episode, episode two, where we discussed some mass shootings, we went into a little more of this stuff. And, we did. But I think on the point of, of this sort of religious fervor around guns, right? I was reading a book just recently called The Republican Brain by mm. Chris Mooney. Have you heard of this book? No. The book focuses on some research. This this relatively new area, I guess it's not that new, but it's been it's been popularized more recently. Yes. An area of uh, psychological research around political psychology, they okay. call it. And he's discussing some of the core personality differences between people who would be described as liberal and conservative or Republican and Democrat, right. what have you. And a lot of it has to do with uh, emotional response, uh, how the brain works when forming arguments and, and attaching oneself to an ideology. Right. And I think there could be a strong element of this evidenced in the gun debate on both sides, hmm. with uh, pro and con gun control, liberals and conservatives. Well, why don't you call him right now? Okay. Chris Mooney is a journalist, author, and host of Point of Inquiry, which is the podcast of the Center for Inquiry, a think tank whose mission is to foster a secular society based on science, reason, freedom of inquiry, and humanist values. He is a contributing editor at Mother Jones Magazine and the author of four books, including The Republican War on Science, and most recently, The Republican Brain, The Science of Why They Deny Science and Reality. Chris Mooney, thank you for joining us on Escape Velocity Radio. Good to be with you. So I'd like to talk to you about the research in your book, The Republican Brain. Uh, but first, maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit about where you're coming from. Some might know you from hosting the Point of Inquiry podcast, which we are avid listeners of here on Escape Velocity Radio. Can you talk about your work uh, with the podcast and also with the Center for Inquiry? Sure. Uh I host Point of Inquiry. It's the flagship podcast of the Center for Inquiry. And what we do, our sort of trademark is the long-form interview with the thinker of great importance in the sphere of science, skepticism, and free thought. So kind of canonical example is the one that just went up. Uh, we did a live show with Steven Pinker and uh, talking about why violence has declined in our society, contrary to what many people may perceive to be the case. Uh, so that's the kind of thing, and we'll go 45 minutes in the interview into a lot of depth. Uh, I come at this as a science journalist who's been practicing that craft for about a decade, a little more. And, uh, you know, I also have a political journalism background, too. So I kind of sometimes combine science and politics. The Center for Inquiry, can you talk a little bit about what the center is really looking to accomplish? Uh, sure. I mean, it's sort of right in the tagline. I mean, um, the Center for Inquiry is a think tank advancing reason, science, and secular values. And it, that's really basically the goal of everything I do, too. I, I, I figure my contribution to the world is to try to make it a little bit more rational, mm -hmm. although uh, for a while now that's been more focused on figuring out why it is so irrational because I think that that is still something that a lot of people don't want to grapple with or accept uh, and sort of how human rationality is the norm and how it's what you should expect to find. And you shouldn't think that you can sort of convince people to change their minds <laughs> based on reason and facts and all that. That's sort of a, a kind of, you can understand why people will believe it, but it's a bit of a delusion. 
So I've been focused a lot on explaining why that is the case. So that brings us to the book. The central thesis of the Republican brain is that many political differences between the broad political right and the broad political left have psychological and perhaps even physiological underpinnings, specifically related to five key personality traits. Can you tell us a little bit about those traits and how they differ between these broad political persuasions? Sure. And uh, the book did make the most of psychological differences, but what's becoming clear from the research is that just that we have the most evidence about psychological differences. And so that the, you know, sort of biology of ideology has come most through the door of psychology, but now it is going into the brain, it is going into the genes, it is going into the physiology. And I know from just following the field that really one of the most exciting areas that we're going to hear a lot more about is hormones uh, and the role that they play in ideology. So it's a whole human system. Um, but, but let's talk about how it manifests itself as psychology. Because it turns out that there's a huge amount of research showing, to me, I think, quite convincingly that politics is personality. And so there are different kinds of people in the world, and no one's ever... Uh, really question that. Uh, and, you know, people know the Myers-Briggs test uh, for personality, although the one that I think is more scientifically established is the one that I talk about, which is the big five personality traits. And those traits are basically called openness, conscientiousness, uh, and then there's a number of others, but it's openness and con conscientiousness. Others include things like extroversion. Uh, Openness and conscientiousness, you get big differences between liberals and conservatives. Conscientious is wanting order and structure in your life. So you, if you're a conscientious person, you know, you're always on time. You take the same road to work every day. You keep a very clean house, etc. And as soon as I start describing that, you already know that I'm talking about a conservative, right? Uh, and so sure enough, that is the case. Conservatives tend to be much more conscientious. And then openness is an exploratory personality, someone who likes to try out a lot of different new things. You want to meet new people, you want to go to new restaurants, you want to travel to new countries, etc. And already you know that I'm describing a liberal. And sure enough, liberals score really, really high on openness. So uh, these, are, these are personality traits. Uh, everybody has these sort of knobs. You turn them up, you turn them down. We have, you know, sort of five knobs at different settings, according to the big five personality traits. And the point is, is that some of the knobs are clearly related to your political views. So it's funny because, you know, I think it would be fair to say that I'm pretty far left on the ideological spectrum, uh, egalitarian, anti-authoritarian, curious about the world. Uh, and in fact, a few of your characterizations of left-wing movements in the book had me shaking my fist at you in rage. Um, mm, good. But, but I also have uh, some of these conservative traits in spades. I mean, I'm terrified of change, even as I try my best to embrace it. I'm often described as an anal retentive neat freak by my friends. So I'm curious if you've heard from many people since publishing the book who feel that they kind of uh, fit a similar sort of hybrid model of their personality traits versus their political stripe. Uh, well, I'm one of those too, just FYI. So I'm a liberal who scores high conscientiousness and high openness. Right. Uh, having taken the test. So you and I might have a lot in common. Yeah. Uh, we both, uh, and people like us, also can make for good centrists uh, a lot of the time. Uh, so, yeah, you can get all kinds of blends, right? Um, and especially if, you know, you're high on openness and high on conscientiousness, uh, then, you know, it's not, it's not clear where your actual 
affiliation is going to turn out to be. So does um, that make us, you and I, perfect then? <laughs> uh, I mean, not perfect, but in the sense that the, I do think that this research suggests that, you know, moderation is the way to go. And so that's the kind of mix that can lead, lead to a lot of moderates. So in that sense, it's probably not a bad thing. But it's just, it's part of human nature that you're going to have all these different kinds of blends. And so you're also going to have extroverted conservatives and introverted conservatives and extroverted liberals and introverted liberals, right? And you just go through the list. You know, and you're going to have, you know, liberals are going to score higher on empathy, which is one of the other ones that we didn't talk about yet in general. Right, right. In broad strokes. Yeah. So obviously the, the sum of genetic tendencies does not a whole person make. Uh, so what has the research shown with regards to the balance between our innate personalities and other strong influencing factors such as geography, upbringing, economic class, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, well, yes, it's not, it's not all one or all the other. Uh, but um, by, ta- by going through the doorway of personality to look at this, we're already bringing up genetics because there's a ton of research that suggests that personality has a genetic underpinning. And so if personality uh, is politics, then politics will have a genetic underpinning too. And uh, there's been a lot of attempts to get at this. In fact, as we talk, there's just a new study out in the American Journal of Political Science that is actually a genetic study because increasingly political scientists are learning the tools of genetics which is where the world is going. And so they're actually analyzing innate fear dispositions, which is basically how strongly, vividly do you experience fear. And there's, you know, various ways of measuring this. And sure enough, they're finding that the people with the stronger innate fear dispositions, there's tend to be, not only they tend to be conservative, um, but they also tend to be, you know, have very negative views of outgroups, immigrants, people of different races, et cetera. So, so this fear of outgroups and outsiders might be one pathway by which, you know, nature creates political conservatism and also other political tendencies. But more generally, there's something called twin studies, which have been used for a long time to try to determine to what extent various traits are genetic. And so, obviously, you know, you take something like height, and what they do is they look at two groups of twins, large groups of two kinds of twins, I should say, identical and fraternal. Uh, And of course, identical twins are more similar on any trait that's genetic, right? Because they share all their DNA, not half of their DNA. Uh, And so what they find is naturally, height, you know, is a genetic trait. So if you have identical twins, they're going to be much more similar in height uh, across a large number of identical twins groups than fraternal twins will be. Right. So that, those twin studies show that politics is an inherited trait uh, and identical twins are in general going to be much closer in their politics uh, than other kinds of twins. Uh, and so that they, they then try to apportion how much of the trait is, quote unquote, rooted in genes. And you get numbers like 40 percent or something like that based on those studies. And those studies are estimates, but they're they're all they're always find um, some inheritable component of politics you try to make the point in the book that we're not really talking about ultimate genetic uh determinism here where you know you are what you are and you know tough shit you can't change it this is a yeah i mean nobody who knows anything about genetics thinks about it in terms of determinism yeah you know i mean determinism is a canard right really um genetic determinism is a canard because 
everybody knows that genes basically switch off and on, so to speak, in interaction with environments. And um, so that's how that's what actually makes you are makes you what you are is a combination of the nature, which is ultimately the genes making proteins, and the environment, which is, you know, all of the influences on, the, <laughs> you know, the feedback, essentially, of everything that happens to you that might change uh, how the genes make proteins. So it's never just the genes. You also talk in the book about how the media we consume or choose to consume contributes to these polarizing differences, and uh, you discuss something called selective exposure. Um, can you tell us what selective exposure is and, and how it works in relation to uh, the political psychology? Sure. And this is, so there's a lot of psychology slash political science studies on selective exposure. And selective exposure is wanting to consume and choosing to consume information that is congenial to your views or your outlook on life or just your interests, right? And uh, all the studies show that people engage in selective exposure. Some call it confirmation bias, but this is really about media, in particular media choices. Uh, so people, you know, tend to opt to consume things that agree with them or that are congenial to them more than things that aren't. We know that's true uh, of people as a whole. Uh, going further, uh, there are certain kinds of conservatives, especially the, the authoritarian conservative, that seem to have a particular proclivity towards selective exposure. When people undergo somewhat radical transformations, say in terms of faith or ideology, do we have any real insight into what's happening? I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, say, white supremacists who become anti-racist campaigners or longtime evangelical Christians who become atheists and skeptics. Are, are those brains actually undergoing physiological changes? Is there a physiological uh, dimension to having an no, ideological... No, no, I, I mean, I don't... I mean, all so your brain is constantly changing. Just that's the baseline is change. Everything that happens to you is a physical change, so right. like when you make a memory. Um, so in some sense, yes, brains are, <laughs> when someone converts right. and starts to live a new lifestyle, oh yeah, all kinds of brain changes occur. I mean, what you, what you might be asking is who's the kind of person that does a 180, right? And I think that, you know, there is, there are a lot of people who know more about that than me, and it wasn't the focus of the book. But basically, what I think happens here is that, you know, in your life, there's some things that can happen that can be incredibly destabilizing to your view of everything. Uh, you know, the whole identity that you build, which includes your politics, your religiosity, and so forth, um, you know, something can happen to you that causes you to question it all. Like, for instance, you know, someone you care about a lot dying let's say, where you just sort of, you, your whole sense of meaning is upended. And, you know, that's when people are vulnerable to, you know, cults and religious groups because they're trying to find new meaning, uh, you know, and their personality types, it's related to openness and open-mindedness. Their person, the opposite of open-mindedness is sort of closed-mindedness or need for closure, need to have fixed beliefs, uh, need to have fixed knowledge. It, well, if you're high need for closure and you had fixed knowledge for a long time, uh, so let's say, you know, a certain kind of fixed knowledge about Catholicism and something calls it all into question and you need a new closure, uh, you might, you know, be then become a really dogmatic atheist. Uh, I think that that's completely possible. 
Earlier in the show, we were discussing uh, the recent Gun Appreciation Day campaign, uh, which bizarrely took place on Martin Luther King Day in the U.S. And that got us talking about uh, this research and how it might manifest itself in the issues of gun rights and gun control. Uh, It's one issue that isn't really discussed in the book, though in many ways it seems like the consummate liberal conservative uh, issue. Do you have any thoughts on how political psychology plays into the gun debate? Yes, although um, the best lens for sort of looking at the gun debate is actually not as much personality, although I think I could probably expand out some personality-related thoughts on gun control, but rather it's, you know, not only does personality serve as a great way of distinguishing between different political persuasions, but so does morality or ethics or the way that you think society ought to be structured. And these moral or ethical views also seem to have a biological and emotional grounding. Um, So, you know, Jonathan Haidt is someone who's researched this a lot, and there's a lot of different ways of getting at this. Uh, But anyway, what it boils down to for these purposes is that there's sort of, there's a morality that is very focused on freedom uh, and individualism and it tends to be on the political right and it tends to be let's just be honest it tends to be male and what it involves is basically saying you know leave me alone Uh, I can I can get by on my own I'm tough I'm self-sufficient and this is the crucial part everybody else should be like me so uh, that individualism is throughout our politics and it's really liberals don't don't feel it in the same way as all of these conservative libertarian largely male <laughs> characters do and uh, so liberals are all about empathy no we have to take care of everybody uh, and we need the government to do that right because the, the one of the key upshots of individualism is you know government can't do any good leave us alone uh, leave us alone to thrive or to not thrive and if we fail that's fair and that's the way it should be right And so the gun issue is along this individualism uh, versus communitarianism, or frankly, versus empathy uh, divide. And that's that's where it sits. All these individualist uh, gun-toting males have this strong, you know, stat on my life, uh, and I'll have my gun as part of my self-sufficiency. And the liberals have this empathy, care, emotion, you know, we've got to protect everybody in society. And those things are running dramatically up against each other. We were also discussing whether if there's something to the idea that uh, if, if there's an, an emotional revulsion to guns, you know, amongst liberals that is actually hitting on the same sort of threat response that might be hitting conservatives, you know, that it's compelling them to embrace them while this, the same impulse is compelling liberals to be revolted at the idea of guns out amongst society. Well, I, I think I would put it a little differently. Yeah. I would say that both responses are emotional, mm-hmm. but it isn't the same response. <laughs> right. And, and, and this is another thing is that, you know, we know uh, that the threat response in conservatives seems to be heightened. Um, you know, there's just a ton of research on conservatives. People say conservatives are more afraid. Um, I don't think it's really quite the right word. And it's a little demeaning. Uh, I think conservatives are more vigilant toward threats. You know, picking them out in the environment and being ready to respond to them at a moment's notice, which might 
be one of the reasons that they think they need guns more. Uh, and, you know, if you have liberals and conservatives, this is the, in the physiological response research. If you have liberals and conservatives look at picture collages and you track, you do eye tracker devices or you do skin conductance devices you know, to measure where the eyes go or to measure how much the sweat glands moisten, things like that. The conservatives are going and looking at the th pictures of threat uh, or pictures evoking fear. They're looking faster. They're looking longer. They're getting more aroused in the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, to, when that happens, and so that's been documented. And then there's these you know, going into the brain. There just continues to be studies that are linking conservatism or republicanism, including one that came out last week, to the role of the amygdala, which is sort of the fear and threat and fight or flight response center of the brain. So uh, you know that that's the response that I think is occurring um, with guns and wanting to have one and thinking that the world is a scary, dangerous place where you must protect yourself. Now, the liberals are having an emotional response, absolutely emotional, but I think it's a very different response, and it is the emotion of empathy and seeing the gun as, you know, completely contrary to that emotion. And so, yeah, there's a fear of it, but it's, it's, a, different, it's a different kind of fear. On a recent episode of Point of Inquiry, you had the economist Paul Krugman on talking about the facts of economics and how many on the right disregard or make up their own facts when it comes to, say, tax increases or cuts, trickle-down economic theory, uh, etc. And it got me thinking about the same phenomena with regards to U.S. foreign policy. Uh, specifically, there seems to be some denial of reality uh, prevalent among liberals in the U.S. when it comes to a foreign policy executed under, say, a Democratic administration, um, when the same acts under a Republican White House would draw justifiable outrage. And in fact, there was an article on Salon.com just the other day about a new study by Michael Tesler at Brown, which showed 27% you know, of liberals supported extrajudicial assassinations of suspected terrorists, but that number jumped to 48% when they were told that Obama would be authorizing these very same killings. So do you see this particular phenomena having an explanation uh, in the realm of political psychology around, you know, group dynamics, allegiance to the group, even among uh, liberals in this case? Yeah. Uh, well, that's, I mean, what you, what it sounds like is a, it sounds like a classic motivated reasoning effect of the sort. I talk about that in the book a lot where basically people tend to be biased more towards the group they affiliate with uh, in studies. I mean, we also know, and this is where I get annoyed uh, when people say that, oh, everybody's motivated, everybody's biased toward their group. No, I mean, the research says that conservatives are more biased toward their group, but <laughs> it, it doesn't, that's one of the things about conservatives, but it doesn't mean liberals aren't biased toward their group. I mean, they, they surely are, um, and I think that's probably what you're detecting. Uh, will be interesting would be to see, you know, how conservatives respond, if you could create uh, a roughly parallel kind of situation right. uh, shift. I mean, you know, and one of the things that we see among conservatives on this that we don't see almost ever with liberals, and this is really shocking, is that it's always the, with conservatism, there's an interaction where the more that they know about politics and the more they follow the news, uh, the more that bias they get towards their group. Um, and you don't see that with liberals. This is, so that's been, this is that's the, been uh, 
this is the smart idiot effect you talked yeah. about. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, you, you just keep seeing the smart idiot effect on the right. Uh, most recently, it was with belief in political conspiracies that make the other side look bad. Where you know it seems that liberals, as they get you know more knowledgeable, they start to dismiss things that are implausible, right? But conservatives, as they get more knowledgeable, engaged in politics, they're like, oh yeah, Obama's not you know wasn't born in the United States. You mentioned in the book uh, this phenomena of the liberal hawks after 9/11 were many, uh, including yourself, who would have generally been uh, anti-war as a general rule, uh, lined up to support the bombing and invasion of. Iraq. Now, you attribute this particular phenomenon, which was pretty widespread at the time, uh, to this fear-based reaction. But I mean, it just seems so, like, can that really be the explanation for such a, uh, a large, widespread phenomenon? And this is a, this was a, a long, protracted buildup to the war. And in the midst, there were the largest anti-war demonstrations the world has ever seen, seemingly providing an ample opportunity for liberals to satisfy, you know, the, both their emotional and intellectual needs in a group, you know, by joining up with these people who are campaigning, you know, against the, the fraudulent pretext for the war. Um, uh, where did you live during this? Well, I lived, I lived in Canada. <laughs> okay. So if you lived in New York or Washington, DC, in the cities that were attacked, and I did, you were literally on a wartime footing when 9-11 happened. And that changes a person. Uh, and it activates your fear and threat emotion. And basically your sense that your life is not secure in a way that overpowers everything else. Right? And when you have a media amplification of that, of the sort that we did, it is terrifying. Uh, and it absolutely is political. And it shifts people to the right. Uh, and it makes them want strong, decisive leaders, and it makes them want a political system that's going to strike out and destroy the threat. Um, and this doesn't just happen in the United States. It happens in Israel when you get a terrorist attack. I mean, this is a universal. And and I let's be simple. You know, basically, everybody's amygdala was activated. <laughs> um, now, you know, did everybody respond exactly the same way? No, I don't think so. But it's the kind of situation uh, where in general, people move to the right. Conservatives move to the right, but also liberals move to the right because we, you know, we have the same basic systems <laughs> in the brain. I mean, there might be some variations in them, and that's what some of the studies are showing. We have the same system. Uh, and so what was happening was we we're being primed to think about threat and to think about mortal peril. Uh, and so, yeah, a lot of people that, who were liberals, you know, they thought George W. Bush was the right leader because he spoke in no uncertain terms about going and basically killing the evildoers. I mean, I think that's, I think that's classic. I think you see this, this exact response throughout history. I would say that it's a law of human nature that you attack a country, you move it to the right, and it wants to attack back. So what would you like people to take away from the book? Um, would you hope that there would be uh, people take a different trajectory when entering into debates with their political opponents or trying to convince friends or family members of their particular political issue? Yeah, I mean, so the upshot is that the people who disagree with you are not crazy and they are instead they are sort of part of the tapestry of human nature. And, you know, 
just as who they are, who they, what they believe springs from who they are, so what you believe springs from who you are. So you really ought to be uh, a lot more, you ought to try to be a lot more tolerant and understanding of the fact that they, they really feel their views. You know, <laughs> they don't just think their views, mm-hmm. just like you feel your views. And so, uh, especially for the liberal, this ought to engender empathy and trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes uh, a little bit more. So I think it, we're getting a better understanding of what politics is. I mean, the problem is that our political systems and our media are not remotely ready uh, to think in these terms. They do not want to open this door because it basically undermines everything that they do. Um, because it's all still premised on the idea that we debate bills rationally we debate issues rationally (laughs) i mean and no that's not what's actually happening Um, but to build a kind of way of doing politics that's actually responsive to the science is something that uh nobody's even really considering yet so you alluded to this a little bit already but what's next for this field of research where does it go from here well i mean what's ultimately going to happen is that scientists and political scientists are going to elucidate all the links in the chain between your genes that make proteins and your answer to a pollster when they ask you a political question uh, or your vote. And there's all kinds of interesting uh, scientific questions there. Uh, you know, We have basically the research that suggests that something makes it all the way to color the belief system. Um, but but how does that occur, you know? And what are the systems of the body uh, that are involved in that? And I think that you know the hormone system is going to be a big one, you know. So that's and and I think that that's where a lot of the new research is going to be. But there's all kinds of interesting stuff coming out all the time. This this kind of research that we're talking about, it seems like you know not a month goes by, but there's more of it in a scientific journal. Chris Mooney, thank you so much for joining us today on Escape Velocity Radio. Great to talk to you. So that was your interview with Chris Mooney. Yes, it was. That was interesting. It was pretty interesting. What do you, what do you what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on uh, what he has to say there and in that book? One of the things that stood out to me the most were his comments about his own personal experience of shifting to the right, quote unquote, mm-hmm. uh, after 9/11 while he lived in uh, New York or Washington. Yeah. I thought it was interesting because it made me think about somewhere like uh the occupied territories. Right. Everybody complaining that people there are militaristic or crazy or terrorists. Yeah, and attributing it to, oh, they're, to, they're indoctrinating their children. Either, and they're, either they're indoctrinating their, their children or worse, that it's, it's somehow based on their, uh, not just their culture, but their race. Right. And uh, I thought, well, I, I suppose if, if Chris Mooney's correct about when you're on a wartime footing, the population generally can shift to the right and look for a decisive leadership to crush the oppressor or crush the the threat that is the life of a Palestinian living in an open air prison. Yeah. You're essentially living in a in a concentration camp for your entire life. It's actually amazing they're not more far gone. Yeah. I mean the same could go for people as much as I don't have a lot of sympathy for Israeli settlers, they're living in that same you know, if rockets are falling fucking uselessly around them. Yeah. They shift even farther to the right, looking for decisive leadership. So leadership in, in, in most nations have a vested geopolitical interest in having an external threat to shift their population further to the right for the population to seek more, quote unquote, decisive leadership yep. that 
think and act and speak in more binary terms, more absolutist terms. And it cements their power. Cements their power, even through the democratic, quote-unquote, process. And there we have it. There we have planet Earth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's not very often that you actually have uh, successful political leaders being the ones who are genuinely and vehemently advocating true peace. It's always about extinguishing a threat or being vigilant against a threat. But I was also, I guess I felt, I mean, the reason I asked him that question about, you know, this liberal hawk phenomenon, this shift to the right in liberals is that he claims you're in a wartime footing, it changes you. But it was such a, this was a protracted period. It wasn't like the day after 9-11, we have to decide to go to war now. And then all the, all the liberals were like, yeah, okay. And then a week later, they're like, have a hangover from this stimulation, this gentle stimulation of their amygdalas. But it does go to show you again that traumatic warlike crises can deeply affect people. And, you know, you and I aren't quite sure how something like that would affect us. But no, I'm pretty goddamn sure I wouldn't support a war shift to the shift that far to irrationality that I would stop understanding the context in which this occurred. Needless to say, there were many people who lived in New York City and in Washington, D.C. at the time of the September 11th attacks who did not take this huge surge towards the right. And, you know, I think the difference is liberals like Chris Mooney and others are liberals, Democrats, you know, maybe not, they may not have the same policy analysis or they may not be of the same ideological bent that you or I would be, I think we're probably far to the left of someone like Chris Mooney. Right. And so if you are more centrist in the first place and you think, well, some wars are okay, some wars can be justified, and for the most part, the U.S. has good intentions when it comes to foreign policy, then maybe it's not as much of a leap right. to, to make that jump. Someone like Jeremy Glick comes to mind when I think about this, the, the son of a Port Authority worker killed in the 9-11 attacks, right. who later went on Fox News and debated Bill O'Reilly as an anti-war advocate and was taken... And this is, this is someone who lost a family member. He lost a family member and, and had no apparent shift towards advocating for war. Yeah. So that's how I imagine, I imagine myself and yourself and people we know uh, would not lose that context and lose our marbles to the, that degree. I can imagine situations... Well, I can still imagine situations where everything around you falls apart and you start to... You glom on to whatever is going to help you survive. Yeah. I understand what he's saying, but it seems like that wasn't the situation where that would be the turning point for me. No. Overall, and I mean, that's a, in his book, that's a, that's a bit of a minor right. uh, point. Overall, I think the research is really interesting. I think it, yeah. sh- it should inform how we talk to people about these issues, uh, how we expect people to respond. And uh, hopefully research like this can help competing ideologies uh, not murder each other uh, as happens now the world over and try to have some kind of coexistence in the continuing struggle of life on planet Earth. Wow. Opportunities arise Open your eyes Don't decline Open the door Fight for you, may not pay, but fight for me!
Well, Derek, I'll forego the Wayne and Schuster reference and just bid you adieu. That's the end of the episode. Thanks for tuning in for episode 8 of Escape Velocity Radio. You're welcome. The best way to find out about new episodes is to subscribe in iTunes or with your favorite RSS reader. Oh, I have several favorite RSS readers. Well, you can all help us reach new listeners by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. It's true, and we also want your feedback, even though you are extremely reticent to provide it to us. You can email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com, or you can leave us a voicemail at 701-213-4483. You can also leave us a voicemail on Skype at Skype username Escape Velocity Radio. Apparently, you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Escape Velocity Radio and on something called SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Escape Velocity Radio. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, you enjoyed this episode so much that you want to dig into the archive and you can do that very thing by going to our website at escapevelocityradio.com where you will also find the show notes for each episode, links to the music we play, and any other interesting items related to each episode. Send money. 